friends. I'm Katie. And I'm Olivia. And we are Podcast by Proxy, Canadian True Crime. Welcome. in the morning so early i mean but it's better than nighttime for us but it is early today for sure i might have a few little coughs i get like a little morning tickle (laughs) (laughs) i just realized as i was like (laughs) it's okay we've got caffeine we're here we got this yeah and we're recording early because olivia had a busy weekend away yeah, Olivia. Olivia's in the thick of her like three weekends in a row extravaganza, and then I get a bit of a break. But yeah, we're recording a bit late uh, this week, but here we are. We're getting it done. And actually, this week is my case suggestion that I gave to Katie because I saw the case and I just was like, <laughs> you know, who would cover this better than me? Katie. It just had your name all over it. So I'm. It's so many pages. It's so many people. <laughs> <laughs> the notes just kept going. They just kept going. So, yeah. I thought this was going to be, like, when you sent it to me and I did, like, you know, the cursory search over the headlines, I was like, oh, yeah, this looks kind of meaty and good. Right. And then it just kept going and going. Yeah. It's like the fucking Energizer rabbit of cases. Yeah, so we might be here for a while today. Nobody knows for sure. I don't care. Nope. Actually, I do. I have to go to work. I was just telling Olivia there's some fires going on that I got to go put out, but they can wait. They'll have to wait. Yeah, there's still going to be problems when I get there, so. Correct. I got my phone nearby. If there's a real emergency, they can call me. Okay, actually, before we start, though, I just have to share, like, a crazy camping story. So, if you live in this area of Vancouver Island, you know that, like, booking camping has gotten wild in the last couple of years, especially since COVID. It's the new buying concert tickets. It is. And then buying concert tickets is, like, I don't even know what, what level we're putting that in. But... Hi. I... There's a campsite that I really like to go to. Usually we go for May Long Weekend every year. Our group decided to forego May Long we- or like skip May Long Weekend this year and go. We're trying to go at the end of July. And so now all the camping places do it a bit differently. But this one was like you book 60 days in advance and the rollover is at midnight. And so there's like these two specific campsites that we wanted. I shit you not, my friend was on... I mean, we should have been on at 12 o'clock a.m. on the dot. Fine. Yeah. But, like, I don't know why in my head I was just like, it's not a long weekend. This isn't really, like, a super popular campsite. This isn't, like, a provincial park well-known. Like, it's... It's July. Literally out in the middle of nowhere. You have to go, like, 20 minutes down a dirt road. She was on at 12.20 a.m. And they're already sold out. (gasps) We did not get our campsites. Oh my god. 12.20 a.m. in the middle of the night. Like, okay, yes, our bad. We should have been right there at 12 o'clock, like, concert tickets. But, like, it's it's the middle of the night, and I was just, like, not a long weekend, not a popular spot. Like, what? Anyways, it's gotten out of control. That is terrible. Wild. And also, like, for anyone who doesn't understand maybe what we're talking about is we only have really one big venue here for concerts, so we only have, like, one round of tickets to ever buy. Mm. So for us, you have to be, like, on it. Yes. So the heat and the pressure that comes behind purchasing concerts. You're, like, tickets. sweating and shaking and, like, but you would, I yeah. would never wait 20 minutes, right? Like, our bad. We should have been a bit totally. more diligent. Yeah, but at like, the same time, I was just, like, I figured people would be getting up at 8 o'clock in the morning. To book it. Agreed. I don't know. I thought, like, yeah, like, doing it before work, like, 6 to 8 a.m. would be a busy time. No, apparently midnight. Realize. I guess, though, if you're trying to book that 60 days out, you really have to be on it. Yes. Anyway, yeah, I just wanted to share that because I was flabbergasted at 
12 20 or whatever time I woke up later than she did and I woke up to the text I think it was like one that I got up I meant to get up earlier but whatever um but I woke up to a text being like oh my god they're already gone so I don't know if we can maybe go the weekend after or we're just gonna try and find somewhere else to go but I just camping has gotten wild it's ridiculous I mean everything has if you live on the island you've ever lived on the island and you're familiar with the island i'm sure you too have noticed the like craze of everything yeah. lately without a doubt it's crazy but so is the case that we're talking about today so <laughs> yeah i am yeah katie said i don't was... think i have any words <laughs> like katie said it was a lot of pages so we should probably get into it now that i've shared my camping a lot sob of story pages. Hell, you know what? We might get halfway through this and be like, this has got to be two parts. Yeah, we you might. You never know. We might. It's a lot. It's weird that you're still frozen. Your eyes are closed. That is weird. You're like this. Huh. <laughs> Caught you mid-hand talk. Well, we'll just start and then hopefully my video figures it out. Yeah, I usually get distracted by watching our videos. That's fair. Keeps just coming back to the same photo. It's fine. It's probably just an issue with, like, one of us has too much running in the background. Possibly. So, yeah, today we are going to talk about a really... And when I say heavy case, I don't just mean that it is sad. But I mean heavy in the sense that there's a lot of information, a lot going on. And it's kind of confusing, but we'll get there. Okay. And we'll get through it together. So today we're going to talk about the Hogue family, or other people might know it as the Coquitlam Massacre, uh, the Hogue family murders. Uh, there's tons of different names that you would hear this under. I'm just going to call it the Hogue family because there's a lot of questions still. So today we're going to talk about Leonard Raymond Hogue. Um, he was born in Winnipeg, as was his wife, Vera Irene, but she goes by Irene. They met in Winnipeg. He grew up with four brothers, one sister. She grew up with one brother, one sister. And they did the typical thing and got married at 18 years old. They're, they're born in the 30s. I was going to so, say, pretty standard for especially back then. Yeah, when you're born in the 30s, I think it was very common that you got married from like 18 to 24. Well, yeah, because that was like, you grow up, you mature, you find a mate. Yeah, you're in your prime. Don't waste that window. We do a lot more in between that now in our generation. There's a <laughs> lot that goes on in between the growing up and finding a, a mate husband. We're doing a lot of like unhinged partying, yeah. like being a bit out of control. Yeah, they didn't do that so much back then. Not Leonard and Irene. No. They just like settled down and started to build a life, really, yes. which was totally normal. Um, Leonard was working as a like a machinist in a large factory, it seems. And they introduced their first son, Larry, to the world. Um, two years later, they had their daughter, Linda Noreen. And just like Vera, she goes by Noreen, not Linda. So you'll hear me use Noreen throughout the story. Can you imagine if I went by my middle name? Yes. <laughs> I love your middle name. For anybody that knows my middle name probably laughed at that too. But just imagine if that's what I decided to go by. Uh, yes. Yes. <laughs> I love yeah. it. I actually have always loved your middle name. I remember you told me about well, actually I saw it on your degree and then you were <laughs> like, Oh yeah, blah 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 and almost felt like explaining your middle name and like the origin of it and I was like, I love it. Yeah. I mean I if I've if it's on my degree, I've posted my degree on Instagram stories before, so if you were like sneaky enough, you would have been able to see it. But it's essentially just like two of my grandma's names shoved together with a hyphen. But one of my grandmas is like very Dutch, so it's like not a... anyways. And that's the half of it that I really love. Yeah. Anyways. I was just love thinking it. about that. Yeah. So now that they are married have a few kids they decide they're gonna make their big move they're gonna move to a different province and start their lives themselves they're not happy in winnipeg they just want to change the scenery so they come out to good old vancouver as many people do when they're escaping they winnipeg do. yeah come to beautiful bc like, yeah totally and they're like 
pretty struggling at this time. Like, they only have what they came out here with. Mm -hmm. Their little bit of clothing, a few items, and they're just going to set up their life again. So much so that the only nice outfit that Leonard has to wear to a job interview is his wedding tux. So he puts it on and he just, like, goes out to apply for jobs. That's amazing. Yeah. So he ends up going to, like, a big work site and the guy's like, I got a lineup of guys ready to work. So if you're willing to, like, take off that jacket, roll up your sleeves and start right now, the job's yours. If you leave to change, I'm picking someone else. Which I think was pretty common at work sites back then. So he just, like, a lineup of men and you'd be like... Yeah, so he's literally in, like, tux pants and a white shirt with sleeves rolled up. He just took off the jacket and, like, went to work. Honestly, though, that is the definition of making it work. Yeah. Like, Like doing what you have to do. Nothing stands in his way. He then moves to work for um, a larger delivery company working in dairy and bakery delivery. But... They want to grow their family and they want a new home and they realize that these jobs are just kind of like dead end. He's not really making a ton of money. So Leonard decides that he needs to kind of put his like big boy pants on and he decides to join the RCMP. And right as he's joining the RCMP, Irene is like, surprise, we're having our third child. So there's just a lot going on in their lives there at is. all times right now. So 1956, he graduates from his cop college and he is introduced through a friend of his to another gentleman named David Harrison. And what it is, is uh, a friend of his, David Harrison is his brother-in-law. So he just introduces him as another fellow man that they might want to hang out with because David Harrison is also an RCMP officer who graduated like a few years earlier. So they just have a lot in common. A little bit about David. When he was 13, he found his father dead in their garage from suicide. Um, And then at 16, while he was driving the car with his mom, he crashed and his mom did not survive. They crashed into a bridge. So he has no parents, no supervision, nothing as of 16. That's awful. Yeah. Um, He blows through, like, all of his inheritance, all his money, because, again, nobody's watching this 16-year-old with an inheritance. Right. And he's probably having a time. He is. Like, I can't imagine. There's nobody checking in on him in any capacity. Like, mentally, emotionally, physically. Just, it sounded like he had no other family, really, from what I read. So when he's 21, he's out of money. He's kind of feeling shitty about himself. He decides that he also needs a new job. So he forges a high school diploma and he signs up for RCMP training. This is also where uh, we meet another contender because while David is in RCMP school, he meets 28-year-old Joe Percival, who is going to be part of this kind of for some group of these guys that all get introduced to one another with their bonding of working for the RCMP. They literally become like the three amigos, these guys. There's kind of the odd man out is the one that introduced them all. But Hogue, Percival, and Harrison are like in their like swimwear. They're like the three stooges. Um, Two of them even become partners in the field. So they become like extra close. Okay. And... Hogue and Percival actually begin while they're on patrol one night. They find out that a local Dairy Queen is left unlocked. I'm assuming being like old school RCMP, maybe they did like what security companies do and went around and checked businesses at night to make sure they're locked while they're on patrol. Right. Um, When they're in the process of it, they realize that the Dairy Queen's unlocked. So they go inside to make sure everything's okay. And they see that whoever was cashing out, like, left their cash bag with the float on the counter. Um, And they decide that they're just going to steal it. Because why not? It's a little extra money. They could both use it. What? It was, like, $40 at the time. But I think in today's money, it was, like, five or 600 Sure. So, I mean, each taking home, like, 250 bucks. So that's could a be poor helpful. start to our RCMP career. Right. Exactly. Not a great start. Right. The next day, when the owner of the Dairy Queen calls to report that they've been robbed, he 
is the officer that attends. So the two guys that robbed them on patrol the night before are now the two officers sent out to check over that guy's business. So he's essentially like getting all the inside scoop. He's getting to talk to the person who is giving them their theory, everything. So they kind of have like a little setup where they can continue to rob the Dairy Queen. And the reason they can do that is because the owner even says, I'm not going to start locking my doors. Like why? I don't know why. I could not find for the life of me a reason why this Dairy Queen owner was like, I'm just going to not lock the door. I mean, door locking was rare in the 30s. Like, people felt like they didn't need to. They shouldn't have to. That's their place of business. That's their home. Like, you should be going near it anyways. But, like, we know better now in 2023. Well, and it sounds like after they lost the money a few times, because these guys continued to just go in and take it because they knew it was there, rather than locking the door, they actually just made a new procedure for the float storage. So they locked up the float, but they didn't lock the business still. Like, I don't know why, but they were just like, we better lock up the float. How about the whole fucking business? Yeah. Yeah. Around this time when he's graduating cop school, getting partnered with these guys and meeting all these friends, they also have their fourth child, another son, Clifford. Aw, Clifford. I loved Clifford the Big Red Dog. So did I until we did the Clifford Olsen case. And then it's like Clifford just became kind of a name with a bad connotation to me. But Clifford. I did love Clifford the Big Red Dog. So good. So at this point, Irene's parents offer to help them get into a little bit bigger home now that they have, what, four children? Um, So they're like... You're outgrowing your home. What we're going to do is we're going to sell you the home we currently live in at a discounted rate to help you guys get ahead in life, which is, like, amazing. After they move into this home, they have their fifth child, Darlene. And so with five kids, money is, like, super tight. So Leonard, at this time, also got a promotion, though, so that helped close a little bit of the gap in the pricing of, like, their life and sustainability But then in 1961, they welcomed their last child, their sixth child, Richard. So many children. I know. And the thing is, this whole time, Irene is like, he's the best dad, the best husband. Right. He's always there for me. Well, like six kids isn't that much in the 30s either. No, that's pretty normal. My grandma has like, I think she's the oldest of 13, or sorry, the youngest of 13. That's so crazy. Yeah. I thought this was really cute, though. Leonard himself didn't smoke, but part of the reason that people said, like, he's so supportive and good to her is, like, Irene smoked, and he always made sure to carry a lighter on him so that he could personally light her cigarettes for her. Oh, that's so cute. Which, I mean, lady, you've been pregnant for, like, a decade. When have you been smoking? But I guess back then it didn't matter. I was going to say, the 30s. Yeah. I don't know much about their children at the time, but from all accounts, they were all normal and no birth defects or anything that yeah, I Yeah, like heard they didn't of. have any health, major <laughs> yeah. health issues or anything like that. Good to know. Yeah. So every morning when Leonard would leave the house, he would give her a kiss on the cheek and say, I love you, my darling. They, by all accounts, had an amazing marriage, were very close and very bonded. In 1963... They receive another bonus, which gives them the flexibility to now upgrade to another larger home and still keep Irene's name on the deed for the previous house. So they're really getting some equity and building like kind of like a little repertoire of some homes and some places they have. I think around this time they also went and bought like a campsite and a trailer so they could like camp whenever they wanted. Right. They're living their dream then. They're doing it. I was telling Olivia earlier that I added to this story, so I had to number my pages instead. (laughs) So at this time, money is starting to dry up from their little schemes that they have just because people are catching on. So Hogue and Percival decide to, like, really loop Harrison in more and more to what they've been doing this whole time. Because remember, those two go out on patrol together. So they're, like, out together doing these, like, antics. But they decide to loop Harrison in. And he's like, I'm in. I'm joining this. I need some extra money. Which is great because they have an extra body to help in their plan. But now they have to split whatever they make between three people. So it's 
like higher risk, higher reward in both avenues there. It's also concerning how many of these cops are willing to just break the law while on shift. I'm glad you feel that way. Because when I was writing these, I was like, oh, God. And it gets worse. So hold on. Uh, yeah. So 1961, they decide that they are going to break into a hunting store because they need weapons to be able to perform larger scale robberies, but also be able to not use their police certified weapons because that'll be too quick to be caught. Right. That's too obvious. Exactly. So they go onto the roof of this store, they open a hatch on the roof, and they, like, literally, like, Mission Impossible themselves into this place. They make out with, like, over $1,000 in product, including 14 guns, a bunch of knives, other hunting supplies, and $1,000 in, like, well, I guess the 60s now. That's a Mm -hmm. lot of money. Yeah. Dang. So Van PD that they all work for is starting to feel like someone has inside information because they're realizing that some of these details are just like, you have too much knowledge, but they have no link to anyone. But he's starting to feel like the constant um, tapping of the Dairy Queen and then this are all too similar in different ways in terms of what knowledge you'd have to have to perform such stunts. Yeah. Well, and they're not finding anybody, right? Yeah. They're not catching anybody. No. There's no evidence left behind. Yeah. And they brought in seven of their newer officers and interviewed them all, including Hogue. And nothing came of it. They trusted them all that I guess he had a good enough story. Hmm. But given that there was like an inkling of suspicion around Hogue just because that was his patrol, that was his area, so they kind of could put more on him. They decided to move him from street patrol into one of the prisons as a facility agent, which in one of the podcasts I was listening to about this was like essentially a downgrade, but it was Mm -hmm. safer for the precinct to not have him on the streets because they were worried that he was part of the one either giving information. That was also another part of it. They figured he was involved in like some way, but now they've also taken away his avenue. Well, and they kind of thought like maybe he isn't doing it, but maybe he's giving people information or telling them how to do things. Mm -hmm. Um, So that was also a factor, but it did not slow them down at all. Him being taken off the streets. Good to know. There's still two of them out there. They're gallivanting. 1962, Harrison drops a bomb and decides to, hey guys, let's rob a bank. We can do this. Oh, we're escalating. We're, we're, we're stepping it up. We're stepping it way up. Yeah. They think, what's the best day of the year? What day is going to have the most money in the bank? And that's going to be end of day Christmas Eve. All the stores are doing their drops. All the people have put all their money in the bank. People are, you know essentially going in and taking out small amounts of cash for gifts but they're also depositing equal amounts from people who have gotten money from work bonuses things like that right so knowing as well that there's going to be an armored truck there doing a drop off from additional major stores that are farther away they plan that they are going to hit this bank at the very end of the day following the armored truck so that they're able to collect the most money they can on what they think will be the busiest bank day of the year Ballsy. Yeah. Very ballsy. Harrison at the time, uh, just like a few days before this attack, had actually been suspended from work because he was caught fighting at work and outside of work for poor conduct. So what they did is they decided that he was going to be the getaway driver. He would be in the car with a radio. And as soon as he heard that any police activity was coming in, he could also call the police and report an alternate activity of greater magnitude at a different location. So his job was to go steal the car just before the attack. So the car wasn't recognized. And at 4.50 after Sears drops their money and the staff is starting to lock up and count money, they will infiltrate the bank and take that cat. A sophisticated plan. Yeah. Hey, you know what though? It does work for them. They throw on some ski masks, some trench coats, and they walk in with some big guns and bags, and they get $106,000 in two minutes. Which is a lot of money in the 60s. It's a lot of fucking money. Yeah. Like, I should open Time Money Converter and be like, bleep, 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 but I'm not going to. 
Well, I could. So you could. <laughs> 63. So they ditched the car with the intention of going back and damaging it later. So the police never saw the car. So there was no bolo out for them, but they thought it was safe to ditch the car anyway. So they do so. They then go back in the evening and they like smash up the car, pull the tires off, make it look like it was a car that just got boosted and then stripped. Um, the tellers described the men as one was about 5'8 and obviously a trench coat and a mask and very nervous. And the other man was over six feet. He was very calm and had a very casual demeanor about him throughout the whole thing. When Hogue got home on Christmas Eve, he told his wife that he had received the biggest bonus he had received yet. Chad, you they, don't say. Yeah, honey, look at this huge cash bonus I brought home on Christmas from the police department. $100,000, by the way, in 1963, converted to 2023. So today, um, it, the inflation on it is 891.38%. And the... Converted amount is $991,382.35. So essentially a million dollars. So you got a $300,000 bonus and he just was like, no big deal, wifey. Yeah, like three to three fifty, basically. In today's money, it was about a million dollars that they stole. Now, granted, back then I feel like it was like the husband dealt with the money and the work and the wife dealt with the kids in the house. So she might not have even seen the oh, yeah, amount. No. So who knows? Well, and he's just coming home and saying, I got this giant bonus. Like, I don't know if you would question it. I don't think so. So shortly after this, uh, considering Harrison's already suspended, Percival actually uh, brings to the table that he wants to start a new plan. But he's not even an officer anymore. He's actually recently left the detachment. And Harrison's suspended. So essentially everything's falling on Hogue now. Right. Because if he gets busted, he's the only acting officer at the moment. Harrison is moved to a different facility following his suspension because he's no longer, like, trusted within um, the Vancouver area. So he moves out to Nelson to be an acting officer there. And Percival, as we said, has just quit because he wants to become a real estate agent. Oh, okay then. (laughs) Might be a better way to launder your money. He went a completely different direction. Yeah. So now Hogue was essentially like the most important part of this plan instead of being one of three parts of the plan because he is the only inside man in the Vancouver detachment. Right. So he's the only one that can actually get them information. And in summer of 94, they decide they are going to now rob the Sears store, which if I'm not mistaken is directly across the road from the first bank they ever robbed. Okay. Because they were yeah. talking about that Sears, right? Yeah, and because then... that was one of the cash drops they were counting on. Yeah, like waiting for that cash drop. Yeah. So Monday, they hit the cash drop wearing no masks this time. And so Reg Keen went to Sears to collect 88000 um, and then was heading back to his truck because he was the armored agent who would be doing the drops. As they were doing that, um, they essentially, like, attacked Keen outside his van to try to steal the 88 grand from him directly. They threw pepper in his eyes. They started beating on him. But he started to fight back and kind of kept the guys on scene a little bit longer. Meanwhile, getting punched in the face, nonetheless. But he falls to the ground. And right then, the store manager for Sears sees this happening because he's walking into the building. Right. And he used to be an ex-RCMP officer. So, Lee Visosky was walking into work. He tackles Hogue. And he was able to get a full view of his face. Um, and also, like... Hogue dropped everything in this process. His weapon, the money, any accessories he was carrying. They all just, like, fell off of him. Oh, no. And they, like, just got in the car and took off. Okay. So, Vasovsky provided extensive details and descriptions, um, but nothing came of it immediately. The police were able to connect, though, the gun that dropped on the ground there that he handed in as evidence to the hunting store robbery. 
So now we know the hunting store robbery, which we already think is connected to Dairy Queen, is now connected to this robbery, which now they're kind of saying it would be stupid for us to not think all of these are connected. Are connected. So they're really starting to put the pieces together okay. um, with that gun. Seven months later, on January 15th, 1965, RCMP get a call from a local man saying that there is an armed man acting recklessly at a local elementary. All police rushed to the scene, obviously assuming there's children at risk. Um, it was just like a total like sleight of hand magic trick, though. They were like, look over here while we do something over here. They were calling this in so that they could distract from where they were actually going to be working on <clears throat> breaking in and stealing all the money from a bank of Nova Scotia this time. Oh, the Scotia Bank. The Scotia. That's my I bank. I bank with the Scotia Bank. Me too. <laughs> when I read that, I was like, damn, that's my bank. <laughs> so this time they were wearing like, I I wrote down clown get up because they had like glued on. Clown get up. <laughs> like prosthetics almost this time. So, oh my god, no way. Like fake noses and stuff to like change yeah, their identity. So like, oh my yeah. this is involved. Yeah, they like essentially just they like, tried to change their faces rather than wearing masks this time because they know they had been seen the last time. So they didn't want to wear masks, but they couldn't look the same. So they had like just tried to change their faces. Like adding high cheekbones. <laughs> yeah, and like a bigger <laughs> nose and like things like that. Oh a my passing- gosh. Yeah. A mailman was walking past the bank and could see what was happening inside. So he actually took his mail van and could tell that one guy was on the lookout outside and parked his van in front of him. Oh, so he blocked him in. Yeah, so he blocked the getaway car. And then that's when Harrison gets out and he's like, move your car, I'll shoot you, I'll shoot you. So eventually the guy does move his car because he doesn't want to get shot fair um and immediately harrison just starts like laying on the horn because they had like this little code to get out of the building so he's like me, 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 trying to get them out of there so they all flee out and take off chief ralph booth um was seeing that these again are all connected he's putting the piece together the robbery made him very concerned now about a walkie-talkie that had actually gone missing from the detachment months earlier with these new getaway cars and all these new setups that are happening and this is where he starts to think that someone has taken a radio and given it to a criminal and is essentially just helping someone he still is not a hundred percent sure if it's an actual rcmp agent but his little hairs on the back of his neck are going up because he's not sure how they're understanding all these standard procedures. How do they know, like, how the RCMP work once you call in a crime? Yeah. They know too much. Yeah, there's too many things that are going too well for the criminal side of it. Right. February 11th of 1965, the three men brought in a fourth man to provide um, some support during their last job, but This man is not a huge contender in this um, compared to the three we'll come to find out. But it's still wild to me how many of these officers are willing to just jump on board with no question. Well, the fourth guy they bring in is like that guy that introduced them all. Right. So like they're all close like that. Yeah. So it's the reason that he doesn't get named much is because, like I said, he was never charged. So I don't want to put too much of this on him because I don't actually know fully what his involvement was in the end. But these three were all up in this business. So on the 11th, they call in that once again, there is a man with a gun in a heavily um, crowded department store. So police rush to the store. However, they don't send all forces because it's not needed in this circumstance. They send a a group of police officers. This is around 5 p.m. 5.30, the group of men go to the Canadian Pacific Railway Yard. They're dressed like railway workers. One of them's in, like, coveralls. One of them's in, like, a dirty t-shirt and jeans. Like, they're just, they look like the part. Um, and they know that there is a, shif- a shipment of discontinued money that's on its way to Ottawa to essentially be destroyed. But they think that they can 
get past the guy at the booth and intercept the delivery and just take it. Okay. That's... They're very, very confident at this point. They're very ballsy at this point. Very yeah. ballsy. Like, it's... Are you even doing any police work? It's... No. You, there, it's not possible. Like, you're way too busy planning all your schemes. And even when you are working, you're probably planning. So it's like, there's nothing happening. Ever. Yeah. Anyway, they get past the guy at the front gate. The guy at the gate looks at them and goes like, yeah, you're wearing the uniform. You look the part. Kind of like flags them in. No big deal. As soon as they're behind that guy, they like hold him at gunpoint, get him on the ground. And they're like, stay here, essentially. (laughs) Tie him up, whatever. Jesus. Immediately they locate the shipment. They take the batch of money out. And in less than 20 minutes, they have taken away $1.2 million in discontinued bills. Holy crap. Now, the downside is when they start looking through these bills, they realize that the Canadian government or, like, the Royal Mint, maybe, I don't know who would have done it, has actually taken, like, a drill and drilled through the stacks of bills to Mm. show that they're marked. So they don't just have to follow, like, the serial numbers for these bills if they were to get stolen. They are physically marked. (laughs) So the holes were drilled into different areas on each, like, stack of bills. So what the guys decided to do is that they were going to, like, cut the bills and, like, patchwork them together. So they would take, like, two halves that didn't have holes in them and stick them together. Like, with Uh, tape? I I guess so. It just says they patched them together. I mean, I don't think they were sewing them. And it does say later that they do hand a bill to someone that is taped together. So, yeah. Like when you break a $5 bill and you tape it together and just hope the cashier will still accept it. They did that with their entire pot. Yep. Imagine $1.2 million in bills that they are. I hate to laugh, but this is heinous. Oh, I know. When I saw that they were taping this money back together. And you know what? Up until now, I almost am like not mad about anything because really nobody's gotten hurt. I mean, a lot of people's businesses have gotten hurt. Yeah, but, like, until you hear what's coming. Sure. You're like, this is mild this is not, compared this is, to, sure, yeah. sure, sure. But this I, is I'm the still entertainment not, portion. I'm still not on board with any of it. But it's, like, well, I'm, it's wild. Yeah, it's a lot. Well, like, even when police started releasing pictures of, like, the bills, the guys were like, we're fine. We eliminated the holes. <laughs> Okay, sure. Just going to start circulating a million dollars worth of taped together bills into the economy? Well, like, okay. like, legit. Like, listen to this. On April 17th, Percival and McDougal, so the other guy that got brought into it later to help them tape the money together but wasn't charged, those two of the group go out for a beer and they pay with a $20 bill that's been taped back together. And the bar owner had, like, just watched that segment on the news. So he was like, taped together money seems weird, so I'm just going to call it in. Hell yeah. Yeah. Like, you see something, you say something. So many people would not do that. No. And this guy was just, like, looking out for his bar as well. He's like, did I just get scammed? Yeah. So upon searching their hotel room once the police show up, they find that there is 12 thousand dollars in taped together bills in this room as well as a pistol that was stolen from the hunting store thank god they are stupid enough to keep these guns around for so long and not like sell them or reuse them other ways because these guns are definitely like no pun intended the smoking gun (laughs) sure like this the the nail in the coffin yeah yeah so Hogue hears that the other two have been arrested and he immediately calls Percival's brother-in-law um, and he's like, oh my God, something's wrong. Everyone's getting busted, blah, blah, blah. And so, um, like Van PD, when they found this out in passing, they were like, why did he call this guy? So it kind of opened a new can of worms. They knew sure. there was like a other guy they were looking for. That's how they put together the connection of who introduced who right. is because they're slowly letting each other know what's going on so they can all make a plan or get out of town. Right. These are not very smart police officers. They are not. And I mean, I mean, keep in mind today, cops go through a lot more rigorous training. There's a lot more rigorous screening process, especially for RCMP. And like, there's a lot more level of training that goes into it. 
getting hired as a policeman in like the 60s was very much just like getting a job at Walmart and just getting like thrown on the job um but it's still wild like yeah no it's crazy it's so weird like to hear how some procedures were back in like the I would say like 20s to 60s Mm -hmm. and it it shows based on the type of stories and like investigations that we hear about that went on during that time and like police corruption and all that and I'm not saying that it's like there is no police corruption now we know that's not true but at at least we know there's like way more rigorous screening processes and training processes and like I would hope that the majority of people going into policing aren't just thinking of it like a like a random job like a loophole to just like or a yeah. loophole to commit crimes like that's a terrifying to think about in our community yeah it's oh god there's so many layers to this that i'm like i'm so glad that things aren't like this but at the same time it's like there's parts of this that i wish were still true like where police were just looking at straight facts like even this guy immediately was like this could be an inside job right. now we would be like blue protects blue like right you don't right yeah. So I think there's certain parts of it where I'm like, damn. Or like, it, yeah, it gets like covered up a lot more nowadays. Hush, hush, under the radar, deal with it behind closed doors. Like, the, you know what I mean? Like, that's a lot of what goes on with that now. But yeah, this is a lot more out in the open. After like words spread around the detachment that the police were kind of thinking this could be an inside job, they noticed that Hoag like got really quiet. His personality changed a lot. Um, he overall, like, wouldn't really make eye contact with anyone. Um, yeah, he was just acting very odd, very off. And on April 19th, he actually gotten, like, a... When I first read about it, I thought it was a pretty minor fender bender, but it turns out he actually crashed his car into, like, a railing. It slid on its side, and then the car slid still... But when emergency responders showed up to help him, he was, like, standing outside the car and he had just, like, some little bumps and bruises and one cut that needed stitches. Like, he was actually totally fine. Okay. It looks like it was just a lot of damage to the car. And at first, when everyone showed up, they said that somebody else had hit him. Um, But then the next day, he says, no, that's not true. I was actually... I didn't... I braked too hard and the road conditions were bad and I crashed. Okay. But when they look into it later, there's no skid marks on the road. Oh. So he decides that he's going to go get his stitches and he's going to take the day off work because this happens quite early in his day. Fair. He goes and gets his stitches, relaxes for a little bit, and then he goes to visit his friend Dan, who is an officer at the Canadian Pacific Railway. So Dan says that he had Leonard over around 6 p.m., and Leonard asked if he could borrow his 357 Magnum because he wanted to go practice shooting. Oh, no. Yeah. I don't know why that just gave me an immediate oh, no, but it sounds... Oh, it did to me, too, when I was reading this case, and it I know It sounds like an oh, no. Yeah. So he thought that he was going to... He made it sound like he was going to go to the range right then and there, just shoot recreationally, blow off some steam, and then later on they'd meet up for drinks, and it would be fine. Uh, He was going to borrow the gun for a little bit, so he left. No big deal. Uh, They met back up outside of a hotel where they were going to go to the bar. Uh, But Dan actually said, you know what? I'm not really feeling like drinking, but we can still, like, chill for a bit. So it looks like they just hung out by the car, um, just chatted, hung out with one another. Leonard, during this time, while they were sitting chatting, kept looking at his watch and saying something along the lines to, I don't have much time left. But he just assumed that he meant that, like, he had to get home to help put the kids to bed or help sure. his wife. Yeah. Um, he also knows that, like, they had just, he had just mentioned that it's Darlene's birthday in a few days. And Irene is, like, known for baking a cake for, like, any and every occasion she can. So he knew she was at home baking a cake. So he just kind of assumed, like, maybe she just needs the extra hands tonight. Right. And Makes didn't really sense. think anything of it. Yeah. But following Leonard leaving Dan... We are not 100% sure of what happened, still. Just FYI. Okay. So from here out, there's a little bit of fact, but mostly theory. Yeah, that's fair. Um, Just to put the pieces together. Happens in a lot of these cases where there's one person committing the act and 
there's no other people to to say what happened or not. Yeah, exactly. So April 20th, the day after this little car accident, Officer Hogue is completely MIA from work. With okay. concerns of him maybe having, like, a head injury or something bad have happened to him. Like, maybe he went back to the hospital that night. Right. Inspector Oliver and Sergeant Much, they head over to his house to check in because at the time with no cell phones, they got officers at the detachment to keep calling him. And two other officers went to his house to check in on him. The van police are phoning him, as mentioned, over and over, seeing if they can get him into work, but no mention. Or, sorry, but no luck. Because his car accident was, like, the day before. He called into work, sick, whatever, said, I'm not coming in today. I got in this accident. He goes out that night with a friend. And then the next yeah. day, he doesn't come to work. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so they didn't really think it was that weird. They just thought maybe he, like, slept in and forgot to call us because he's not feeling well still. So they but thought, like, a, like, let's just yeah. find out. But, like, a yeah. bit weird because he would have called in sick again. And, like you said, they're like, did he have a head injury? Is he unconscious? Exactly. Yada, yada. That was their sure. biggest concern. They really thought nothing bad right out the gates. Right. So That's when they fair. arrive at his house, they find on the door stoop for the same day the paper for the 20th. They think it hasn't been brought inside yet, but all the lights are out. So they think that... You know, maybe the kids have gone to, oh, it's spring break. So the kids are out of school. So they think that maybe Irene has taken the kids out for the day and he's stayed home and slept. So they walk around. Nothing looks weird. Cindy, the black lab, is out in the backyard. Um, the neighbor said that they thought Cindy looked a bit hungry, but they tried to feed her, but she wouldn't eat, which for anyone who knows labs, that's weird. Very but... <laughs> weird, unless you're my parents' dog. Although he's not a lab, he's a retriever, but... Close enough. They should still eat. Yeah, he. I mean, it's not like he doesn't eat, but he requires a whole fun and games to get it done. Oh my god. Yeah. So Cindy otherwise looked like a okay, and the officers were like, "It's totally normal that people's dogs live outside." So Cindy being outside wasn't a reason for concern. And if Leonard was inside sleeping and the kids weren't there, that might have just been to keep the house quiet. And I actually do dog sit German shepherds. I love them so much. Uh, but the one will not, and I've dog sat for them for years at this point. Like they know me well and she still won't eat unless her mom's there. Like she will not eat her food when I'm there. Tucker was like that. She waits until her mom gets home to eat her meals. So it could be something like that too. You just never know. Yeah. And that's why even the officers and when they talked to the neighbor in passing, everyone was kind of like, yeah, it's a little weird, but it's probably nothing. Well, and it sounds like they weren't jumping to worst case scenario, which like you go, Glen Coco, can't relate. Yeah, they thought he was just resting and sleeping. Yeah. Like really nothing crazy, especially with the kids being on spring break and one of the kids having a birthday in a couple of days. They were like, they probably are just out doing something. Straight up, I was on the ferry yesterday coming home and there was a guy and he was passed out and nobody was able to wake him up. And my first thought was that he was dead. First thought. Yeah. Which I still uh, don't actually yes. know if they woke him up or not because we had to go. So, Daryl, I really hope that you woke up on the ferry. But literally, my first thought was like, is he dead? I would have thought the exact same thing. Yeah, just a worst case scenario gal. Yeah. Hey, there was a girl passed out in a car outside my condo once and I thought she was dead. So, I mm -hmm. get it. Exactly. So, the officers knock at the door. The doors are locked because they tried the handle quickly. But they also think maybe if he went to the hospital last night for further, further medical testing or there was anything that he needed, uh, maybe he was checking in with his family doctor this morning. They're not too concerned at this time because everything at the house looks super normal. The curtains are closed. Average day. Sure. So they like, just assume that he will call later in the day or else tomorrow morning with an update. Like not quite time to break into the house yet basically no and again there's no cell phones so like people weren't in constant communication at this time this is just the way it was so they were like let's give him a bit of time he's a grown adult everyone's out of the house like it's probably nothing <clears throat> um so the morning of the 21st comes still no word from leonard also his wife hasn't even called into work saying that he's still sick like nothing no one's given an right. update so one of the officers or the two officers returned back to the house because they were there the day before so they think we'll go look see if it's the same there's now two newspapers papers on the stoop and cindy is still out in the backyard 
So now we're it's now cause for concern up. time, people. Yeah, we're we're turning up the little concern dial here. Day two, nothing's changed. Dog's still outside. Mm-mm. Well, on the day before, they noticed that there was one small light on in the basement, but the windows were down at ground level, so they didn't really think anything of it. But this time, an officer decides to like crawl down on his hands and knees and like look in the window. And he sees the light on, and then as he's, like, scanning around, he gasps and falls back because he sees one young girl with a bullet wound to her head laying on the couch in the basement. So Much and Oliver, like, barely muster the words and the strength to call for help. They're, like, in complete shock. They kick down the door. This is where we get into a theory. Because this is what they find and this is the assumption of what has happened. Irene went to bed and they think that Leonard then, like, was getting ready for bed, putting his pajamas on. He has his pajama pants on but no top yet and he just snaps. They think that he went through the house with the 357 Magnum. He first loaded it with six bullets, shooting Irene first at 33 years old. Their 14-year-old son, Larry, was assumed to be next because he looked like he was out, like, off of his bunk bed. So they think that he heard the commotion, was climbing down from the bunk beds to go check. And Leonard went in, found him, and shot him. So they do feel, though, that Larry possibly survived the first shot because upon autopsy, they do see that he has two bullet wounds. So Raymond, who is eight years old, who was on the bottom bunk, he got past him and he ran and hid in the bathroom, but Leonard went and opened the door, found him, and shot him in the head while he was curled beside the toilet, and they think that he missed his first shot because the toilet was shattered as well. So he's just losing it. So we've now shot... Two rounds at Raymond, two rounds at Larry, one at Irene. He he feels the the curtain being pulled from underneath him, basically. The rug's coming loose. Yeah. That's what they're thinking, yeah. So seven-year-old Clifford was found in a closet with a shot in the head as well. At this point, they realized the gun only has six rounds. That would be six bullets. He would have likely reloaded. He goes downstairs, which is in the basement. And this is where he finds four-year-old Darlene and 11-year-old Noreen. Um, Noreen was trying to get Darlene out of there. So she was, like, running away from Leonard. And she had a shot in the back of her head. Um, And that's why they think she was, like, running across the basement and was shot and fell onto the couch. And that's where they saw her through the window. Darlene, the four-year-old, was found, like, in a corner. Like, she had tried to get away or was scared. I know. And Richard, who's three years old, he was shot in the head in his crib. They then think that 34-year-old Leonard returned to his bedroom. He stood next to the bed. He shot himself once to the left temple and laid to rest near Irene. All of these victims were found in their pajamas. The During these two days, while officers were knocking on the door and checking, there were also friends of Irene's that had stopped by who had scheduled right. plans with her. There was also a young boy named Ken Kurtz who was set up to have a play date with the kids. Um, and he came and knocked on the door and no one answered. So, like, yeah. thank God that little boy wasn't yeah. staying there at the same time. Um, as we said, the kids were on spring break, so they had play dates and sleepovers yeah. and all this stuff planned and were just not answering the door. Like you so said, though, yeah. God thank God that, that there was nobody else hurt. there. Like, it's awful. Yeah, I mean, yeah, like, enough. casualties yeah. is enough. Like, jeez. Leonard was found with the shell casings in his pocket, oh. like the empty ones. They assume when he reloaded, he dumped them into his hand, put them in his okay. pocket, took the other six out. So, do we feel like he planned, like he was scared and he got the gun ahead of time to plan this, potentially? However, Irene's family never believed that he could do this. And part of why some say that this is all very odd is that they don't think that 
at the time, A, that he would have been shirtless. Like, and I know that seems like a small detail, but I read it in two different articles and I heard it in a podcast that at the time, men typically wore, like, full outfits to bed, like pants Mm -hmm. and tops that matched. And they were just saying, like, it's it almost seems like maybe he was caught in the act of putting his pajamas on and killed. So maybe somebody else did it. But I don't know. I mean... This part to me seems weirder. Hogue is right-handed. All these victims were shot by someone with their left hand, including he was shot in his left temple. Can you not shoot somebody on the left side of their body if you're right-handed? No, they're saying, like, with the trajectory and everything, they could prove that it was shot by someone who's left-handed. Interesting. Like, they were shot physically with a left hand. Um, Because, like, the... The motive of, like, his livelihood and lifestyle getting pulled out from underneath him and him being the only one that's going to take the downfall for this seems like a pretty decent motive. I just don't see what would the motive be Mm -hmm. of killing the entire family. Mm, I I do agree. The whole family Like, for somebody else. It doesn't make sense. Yeah. No, I agree. No, and family annihilators usually feel like taking out their whole exactly. family is the only option. Yeah. So I, I totally get what you're saying. Well, June of 1965, a coroner's inquest is held, and the jury at the coroner's inquest um, totally agree that Leonard shot everyone yeah. and then committed suicide, sure. or sorry, completed suicide. They do not believe that somebody else was a factor in this. But there's a few other little pieces that okay are odd now one other thing that i will mention about the left-handed shooting though is most police officers including vancouver rcmp have trained all their officers mm-hmm. to be ambidextrous and shooters. like this guy which already fair has shown us that he can plan to cover his tracks yes he's deceptive yeah so well, and they did really drop the ball in a lot of, like, the crime scene itself, which could have maybe played into Leonard at least getting maybe a little more investigation in mm-hmm. his coroner's inquest. So they didn't test him for gunpowder in any way. The gun that was found had no fingerprints or blood on it, nor did the shells. So it shows that they were almost, like, cleaned and then put back in his pocket. And the gun seemed like it was cleaned and placed beside him. Huh. Yeah. But police at the time were like, meh, that's not a big deal. <laughs> they did recover the rest of the money um, in a storage locker in Victoria, British Columbia. Oh. But the interesting point is this storage locker was registered and paid in cash for after the murder. So there's reason to believe that possibly... Hogue was hiding money mm-hmm. and one of the other guys wanted it so they killed Hogue and his family and took the money. Yeah. Okay. That is a possibility. Okay. So 24 years later so like now <laughs> current celebrity coroner Thomas <clears throat> Naguchi he had reported that all of the victims except for Leonard died from a skull fracture and a gunshot wound like very clearly. But Leonard, his skull looked as though it had been beaten and smashed. It had multiple fractures all over it. Um, It seemed as though, like, possibly someone could have actually, like, maybe subdued him and then shot him to look like everyone else and then cleaned the gun and the rounds and put them on him. Um, But again, a lot of this was just a theory. Did Mm -hmm. someone take the money and hide it? Um... Where was the money before it was in the storage locker? Yeah. Like, these are things that we will never know, because once police confiscated the money, anybody else who was at play with this just went completely dark. They just went dark. Like, they're gone. I mean, so to my point, the other guys were equally as involved in covering their tracks and being deceptive, and, like, those people were very quick to jump on board with criminality, so... I mean, with no gunpowder residue and those little things, it's not out of the question. It just seems 
like a classic textbook case of family annihilation. However, maybe somebody wanted it to look that way. I know. I I was really writing this going like, Leonard freaked out. He panicked. He snapped and felt this was the only way out. But then when the money was moved after he died, like, is that just the other guys being cautious? Right. Potentially. Yeah. There's so many questions in this. And unfortunately, there's just a lot that we will never freaking know. It's unfortunate that his hands weren't tested for gunpowder residue or like him. Because I'd like, why? Why wouldn't you do that? I know. I don't know if it was just like they really just didn't think they had to or it wasn't the standard procedure. Like, I am really not sure. Right. I mean, it's possible that they just looked at it and were like, yep, family annihilation. But a proper investigation should be done no matter what. That is super crazy. And like those couple little details, like. And it does show that the gun. Well, the gun he borrowed was Mm -hmm. proven to be the gun used. So that Mm. shows like pre-planning. Yeah, so there's no proof that he ever actually made it to the gun range. No, I think that was just a cover. Okay. So then that he could have been going right? to the gun range like the next day. Like that could just be totally a different thing. But right. so why wouldn't he have just used his police gun if he's going to be gone anyway? Right. Like why did he need to use a different gun? Maybe to make it look like it was someone else. It all seems... I have so many questions about this case I have still. a lot of questions. Yeah. But unfortunately, given the timeline and the fact that as soon as he left his friend Dan that night... Nobody it's knows. It's all what happened behind closed doors. We have yeah. no idea. For me, it's personally just so hard to believe that a third party would kill six children. That's hard for me. A three-year-old in their crib? That's hard for me to believe. I, that's what I had a tough time wrapping my head around was like, like, okay. Okay, fine. Like, you're going to rob you a Sears. You snap and you panic. Sure. Yeah. But just like a third party because they want money or something is going to come in and annihilate someone's entire family, including like all of their children. Do you know how hard that would be to point a gun at a seven-year-old a and child. a three-year-old who's running away from you? Like, I was going to say, the one that like really struck me were the kids that had to run away and try to hide from you. Like, like that's, the girl I that mean, crawled in the corner or the little boy in the bathroom. We've been on this show long enough to know that those monsters exist. It's just so difficult for me to buy that it wasn't And there was him. nowhere in the story that said, like, Hogue took all the money and kept it from the other guys. That right. was never a factor. So it wasn't even like, well, like they were really mad or had a reason to do on it. this money to maintain this livelihood that he had provided for them these multiple homes campsite trailer like yeah they lived way outside their means he knew it was ending yeah the robberies were what was keeping his lifestyle afloat and keeping his family so happy and yeah i I wonder if too he's just worried about discipline i wonder too like could you imagine though he's like if i kill myself i'm leaving my wife with six kids and no money yeah So, like, did he think he was doing them a favor, maybe? Potentially, yeah. Like, the other thing that I think is, like, this police department hasn't really proven to me that they're super credible. So, do I believe when you say there was no gunpowder residue and this gun had no fingerprints and this, this, that, and the other? Like, you haven't proven to me that in this time frame you've been the most credible police department depend like you've had multiple people just come in and join in criminal operations yep and you also have these questionable guys that you've like transferred to other detachments you've suspended one guy like exactly i'm you know what sound off in the comments on this one because we haven't had a case like this where we're really really unsure about our opinion um in a long time i personally am leaning heavily towards he did it um but comment on this case on instagram As am I. yeah comment yeah. on our instagram at podcast by proxy there will be a post covering this case comment on like not it doesn't have to be like oh i think he did it but just what do you, how do you feel about this what do you think yeah are you as torn as we are do, do you, you agree you with some of our opinions a little bit yeah 
I would love to hear other people's like thoughts on this case specifically just because I feel like there's definitely things I'm not thinking of. Um, yeah, maybe someone will give their theory and it'll be like that aha moment mm-hmm. and be like, oh, I didn't even think of that. Mm-hmm. But I've, I mean, what of I'm course, hoping for. more than likely this is a case that we will never know what happened just because, like I said before, there's nobody available to tell us otherwise. Nope. Wild. That's yeah. just awful. That's all I have to say about this one. Awful. Yeah, it's bad. It's very convoluted too. And that's like, what I mean. Like it's so heavy it. with like deaths and information and moving parts. And like these mm. guys were just doing these robberies in like rapid succession. Like corrupt policing. And yeah. Yeah. This case had a little bit of everything. Um, the only thing I knew about this case when I suggested it to you, the tagline that I had was Vancouver cop kills family. <laughs> so yeah, I learned and I a thought lot. I was going into just like, like you said, a plain old family annihilator story, and there was layers. This was an onion. Yeah, no kidding. She's an onion, well, people. you covered it so thoroughly. At least I know what happened now. <laughs> and everybody else on the show. Uh, again, follow us on Instagram, Podcast by Proxy, Facebook, Twitter, TikTok. Comment on the post for this case and let us know your thoughts. Uh, Don't forget to leave a five-star rating and review on Apple or Spotify. It really helps our show out. Um, And also been loving those Facebook reviews coming through on our Facebook business page. You guys are killing it, so keep those up. But uh, thank you to Katie for covering this awful case for us today. And thank you to uh, whoever suggested the case. Um, No, I requested it. Oh, you requested this it. This is a okay. personal case suggestion for me. Nobody suggested this. I just oh, saw it. Thanks, Olive. I literally saw it online, like an article. And, you know, you sometimes articles will like stick out to you and you're like, oh, that's really interesting. Um, and so I was reading it and I just was like, this has Katie written all over it. I don't, this isn't for me. So I then I found messaged you. <laughs> a super cool new page that I'm totally going to use for cases in the future because it's like a... It's like a crime by addresses. It's very weird, but oh. I'm intrigued by it, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna hit it up a little bit. Well, you guys are gonna see a lot of case suggestion episodes coming through in the next little while because we have so many, so and like many. our network suggests cases to us. Like I have two on the go <laughs> that our like network people have suggested that would be good stories to cover. We've got case suggestions from you guys in the Gmail, and like. I don't really have anything too pressing on the docket that I'm looking to cover outside of that. So we're going to have like a pretty big case suggestion month, I feel like. Uh, <laughs> I mean, we you guys know we love a case suggestion. It's it. one of our favorite things is to do case suggestions. So keep them coming. You can email us, podcastbyproxy@gmail.com. Um, but until next week, that's it. Okay, bye. Bye. I'll call you soon. Okay. Okay. Bye. 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 How do I stop this shit? I'll stop it. <laughs> okay. <laughs>